Welcome to another podcast from Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club of California. Get tickets to upcoming live or online events at commonwealthclub.org slash Inforum. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. And now here's our program. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. Uh, I'm Jose Antonio Vargas. I'm the founder of Define American and the author of Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. It's my pleasure, my profound pleasure to introduce you to my dear friend, Maura Ahrens Mele. Maura! Hello! Maura. <laughs> Maura is a self-described, extremely anxious overachiever and host of the Anxious Achiever podcast for LinkedIn Presents. If you are not listening to it, I highly implore you to listen to it and send it to the HR people at work so that you can actually pass it around all the work coworkers that would benefit from it. Uh, we are here to discuss her new book, The Anxious Achiever. Turn on your biggest fears into your leadership superpower. Um, this, by the way, is followed by this book, uh, Hiding in the Bathroom, How to Get Out There When You'd Rather Stay Home. I'm bringing this up because in, over the past decade now, Maura, I think I would take a photo of myself in the bathroom at some public event and i text it to you saying how much I love this book. Um, we are here, though, to discuss the new book, The Anxious Achiever. Um, please go get it. Uh, we'll be, we will actually be covering a lot in the next hour or so. So if you have a question for Maura, please submit them in the YouTube text chat, and we will get to them absolutely later in the program. So Maura, welcome back to the Commonwealth Club. I am um, so happy. Yeah. And just so you know, Maura is in uh, Lexington and I am in Berkeley, but we're doing this thankfully virtually. So it's, it's working out. So your book, like your podcast of the same time, uh, of the same name, reframes how we think about anxiety and mental health in the workplace. How did this, I mean, actually meaning, I don't think I've ever asked you this question. How did this become like a mission? (laughs) Because I'm an anxious leader. Because um, <laughs> because I had to feel my own way um, through two decades of working in corporate America, in presidential politics, in startups, and running my own business as someone who really has to manage her anxiety every single day. And I learned a lot along the way. I think that I had a visceral reaction to the way that we talk about mental health in this country the way that we other it, the way that we make it seem like a something you, you can never escape from, something terrible. And we hate talking about it in the context of work and leadership. And the truth is, there are so many millions of us who manage mental illness, mental ill health, bouts of anxiety, who are doing just fine. Thank you. I have to say, by the way, because this is actually what struck me, because I think it's actually, even within my own like Filipino immigrant family, it's been fascinating watching my nieces and nephews who are like late teens, early 20s, have more language for mental health, but in a kind of personal, familial setting, but not in a work setting. So can you talk to us about that? Like, how do you think about the development of talking about mental health issues, like anxiety, for example, in the workplace? Like, where are we when it comes to that? Is this something that we're seeing more of? Are we like at the precipice of it? Like, where would you categorize it? 
I mean, the pandemic gave us a real kick in the pants, right? I mean, I think if there was any silver lining for this horrible experience, you know, work had to fast forward about 20 years <laughs> in about a month. Um, and it's interesting. Language is really important. When I interview people on my show, I can't tell you how many of them say, when I was growing up, I didn't have the language to express how I felt. I didn't have the language to express that I was feeling anxious, that I was feeling depressed until a few years ago, almost by accident. And the good news is that younger people are by and large growing up with that vocabulary and that sense of social emotional sort of literacy that we we don't we don't have emotional or mental health literacy and so we're working on that personally and i would say at work we're in we're, we're like in we're like a seven or an eight year old. <laughs> like we're definitely thinking about it, but it's very confusing and we really have a hard time talking about it. I mean, I mean, it's funny you say that because reading through the book, I think that was one of the first things that I remember like circling something and I put in the margins like, oh, like you are actually giving us a new vocabulary here. Right. Because, again, I mean, the fact that the book, I mean, clearly everybody can read it, but, you know, you're talking about at the workplace, within leadership situations, like how and as I was reading it, of course, one of the things I was wondering about is how do you think your own kind of mental health experiences like anxiety, bipolar disorder, how have those like sh help shape your professional development? I mean, totally. I just want to say one thing. I mean, people have been talking about this stuff in leadership context for decades, but they, te they tend to dance around scary words like anxiety, like depression, like bipolar disorder. We've been talking about how leaders can know themselves, how leaders can be empathetic. Like we use the framework. Mindfulness is very, very big, right? Especially in the tech sector. But we don't actually talk about what's causing us all the turmoil, all the reactions, all the situations we get ourselves in. And I think if I do anything differently, it's that I actually name it and ask people to think about that. Um, and again, that's from my own experiences. I had my first bout with clinical anxiety when I was 19, also with depression. I was diagnosed cyclothymic, which they now call bipolar two, which means you go up and down, but you don't get fully manic, you get hypomanic, which we can talk about. And um, I, I found kindred spirits along the way because people do want to talk about this in a safe setting. They really, really do. And I think the, the key word there, though, the, the, the key phrase there is safe setting, right? In a place where you're right. Like, I can't even imagine the, 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 those words, anxiety and depression, feel like bombs when you drop them in like a work setting. I just know that it sometimes it appears in my inbox, right? When I'm like in a group email at work and I'm like, oh, there's anxiety right there. What do I, what do I do with that? Right. I mean, I'm like, do I forward that to the HR person? Like, where do I, where do I go? And I think that what, what the book does is actually give you tangible, concrete kind of guide, guidance, which, which I really um, appreciated. You brought up the pandemic. Uh, how has the pandemic and working remotely, you know, how has that really affected anxiety and mental health in the workplace? 
I mean, the truth is we don't really know because we're sort of living out the greatest experiment in history. <laughs> I would say I would say that and, and social media, right? We're just living out a huge experiment. We don't really know. But look, signs aren't good. 90% of Americans think we're in a mental health crisis in this country. And even worse, data from a great Bay Area nonprofit called Mindshare Partners shows that a huge majority, almost 80% of people think that work contributes negatively to their mental health. So we bring our stuff to work and then work amplifies it. And then we just all act it out on each other. And so we really, really, really need to start paying attention. So how would you then advise, for example, like leaders, employers, like CEOs, like to, to adjust kind of their workplace culture and practices? It's really interesting. And the field of workplace mental health is exploding. And I think it's, I, I think it will only grow. It's really a sort of three-part system. You know, it's really important. And this is a huge change in the pandemic, although I'm nervous now with the economy that companies are cutting back. But companies invested, big companies especially, in telehealth, in access to therapy, right? In training for managers to talk about this stuff. That was sort of revolutionary. And that's really important. And then you know, managers really need to learn how to have conversations so that they don't feel like the office therapist, right? And we can have a little bit of skill building. But the third level is real culture change. And that comes from the top. And it's about talking about mental health, but it's also about having equitable, fair, less toxic workplaces, <laughs> um, you know, and that's a challenge. The Surgeon General actually released a framework earlier this year for mentally healthy work. And part of it is really stuff that we all want, which is like pay people a fair wage, give them sick days, treat them with dignity. Guess what? That improves mental health. I mean, it's interesting because what you're basically saying is all of this is actually connected. It's right? all so, systemic. It's all don't, systemic. Don't be racist. Don't be an asshole. There you go. Don't be sexist. Don't be racist. Don't be an asshole. All those things actually are part of the equation here when we're talking about mental health at the workplace. You, you, I mean, you encourage leaders because I've seen this. I mean, I've seen you do this. And if you listen to the podcast, that for me, that's actually what's one of the great things about it is like listening to people putting language and creating this kind of vocabulary, right? So you encourage leaders to tell their own mental health stories. Can you can you share some with to be especially with people that haven't listened to your podcast and now we will listen to your podcast. Well, thank you. You know, one of my favorite stories recently um, came from a man who has a really, really big job. His name is Jimmy Horowitz, and he is the vice chairman for business affairs at NBC Universal. You may have heard of it. It has a $47 billion market capitalization, giant entertainment news, you know, Universal, NBC. And Jimmy's story is super fascinating because Jimmy, as he's told me, is a business guy. He's responsible for the P&L of this giant company. And he went through clinical depression. And he said, you know, the creative people, they're allowed to have more emotions. You know, they're allowed to talk about mental health. They're creative. <laughs> but I'm a, I'm a business guy. I deal in numbers. And for me to talk about this was very scary because what if people lose trust in me? Right? Right? We have so much stigma around this stuff, 
but he did talk about it and it was tremendously powerful. And he's the executive sponsor of NBC Universal's Mental Health at Work program and his ability to both be vulnerable, but also, as he said, to reach people who are going through hard times and have the understanding and empathy for what they're going for has been a transformational thing for his leadership. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, what would you advise? I mean, what, what, what advice would you give a business leader who feels really deeply anxious at work? Well, I can't imagine a business leader who hasn't felt deeply anxious at work. <laughs> I mean, it kind of comes with the job. You know, for a lot of us, anxiety shows up as a fear of the future, a fear of uh, the unknown, a fear of being exposed for not being worth it, right? <laughs> a fear of loss. And that's life and that's leadership. So of course, leaders feel anxious. Now there's a difference between feeling anxious at times and having an anxiety disorder, walking around with it all the time. But either way, you know, I encourage leaders if they, they feel safe and if it's something that they're ready to do to talk about it, because when you send that message, everyone else below you feels a little bit more able to be themselves and get what they need. I mean, I have to say though, like that, that, that the observation you made a few minutes ago about this has to actually start at the top, you know, like it, you actually, this is, this is how you actually show leadership that this is something that's happening within our workplaces. It happens in all workplaces. And this is the vocabulary in which we talk about it. And this is, this is how, I handle it and like what other resources can be available in the workplace. So I, I kind of want to dig a little deeper into this because again, like, you know, as I was reading the book, as you're giving it, the, giving us this vocabulary, I just want to make sure, like, how would you characterize an anxious achiever? An anxious achiever is a term of art that I made up. So there's no blood test, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jose, you said something when we talked a few weeks ago that I've kind of stolen because I think it is absolutely profound, which is anxiety is our oxygen. We get it's, yes. but like how many people out there are like, wow, am I, it's, you know, America runs on Duncan, but like America runs on anxiety for, for a lot of us. And we are fueled by it. It keeps us wanting more. It keeps us working hard. It keeps us trying. It keeps us staying late. And what's interesting about that is we can get very rewarded for that behavior at work because those are deeply Amer American sort of capitalist values. The problem is when you are motivated by anxiety, which is basically saying, if I don't do this, everything's going to go wrong, so I better do this, you burn out. You get emotionally exhausted. You get sick. You, you can't feel joy, and your relationships suffer, and you really can't take risks, right? I mean, the interesting thing about anxiety is that when we can manage our anxiety and it comes upon us in a moment of need, we can take great risks because we're motivated. We have that activation energy, yeah. right? As Dr. Wendy Suzuki says, but when it's chronic, when we're carrying around the tape in our head all day long, it just zaps us. I have to say, by the way, and please, if you're watching this, uh, we're going to take some questions later on, but please start 
make sure that you ask those questions as, as we're talking. I remember we were sitting down when I said that to you, that anxiety is oxygen. And I think what I should probably unpack a little more is for me, like I'm so used to it that I, I try, I almost as if I've made it its own thing that I'm just like, okay, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a drawer, right? You know, under my desk here, and I'm just going to take my anxiety and just put it there and try to pretend like it's not there. And as an undocumented person, like, you know, I'm flying out, for example, at an airport tomorrow, right? And it's going to be going to a Midwest city that I would go to another Midwest city, places that undocumented people can't drive legally because most in most states we can't drive legally. So those are just the anxious things that I think about, but I try not to think about, oh, that's going to put me in this situation or that's going to make, or that's the risk I'm taking. So I just, I just kind of take it and make it a ball and put it in a, put it in this shelf or put it in this compartment. Right. And that's what, when I said that to you, I don't think I've actually ever even said that to another person. Um, but yeah, it's like oxygen, you know, and, and then this gets back to your book is, what what are the pitfalls of that? <laughs> like what, what what are the pitfalls of anxiety? I mean, Jose, I just I just want to say something. First of all, I mean, I think the drawer is a really good coping mechanism. A lot of therapists would be like, Yeah, good job. You're compartmentalizing, oh. you're putting that anxiety away. That's great. But I want to say that the anxiety that you must have grown up with and that you carry around as an undocumented person is something that I can't even imagine. And there is so much data out there that people who have less privilege, less access, less status in society, of course, feel more anxiety. Yeah. Right. Huh. And so I just want to, I just want to talk and think about that because I see, I think sometimes we think anxiety is for, we think it's for women. We think it's for, you know, young women in high school. Cause that's gets a lot of press, but that's not true. And so that's, again, coming back to society and systems, it's really important. Um, What was your question? Sorry, I went off. So, I mean, I I was just wondering, like, I mean, I know for me, this question I was asking is like, what are the, I'm definitely anxious. It's oxygen. I'm definitely an achiever. Um, But there are pitfalls to that. And, you know, you've talked about like experiencing joy, right? Like how, you know, doing this book and I can of course recite some things, but I'd rather you talk about it. Like what are the pitfalls of being an anxious achiever? You know, I was sitting, I was sitting here before we went on and I was feeling really sad and I realized it's because yesterday my book came out and it was a really exciting day, right? It's like your birthday. And today was quieter. And then my Amazon sales were up and down And I was sitting in my hotel room just now and I felt completely anxious. What's next? Has this book failed? Who are you if this book doesn't meet your expectations? Those of us who are anxious achievers or who live with anxiety, we have this voice in our head. I call it the voice. It's always telling us, you're not done. You could do better look around the corner. If you're not the best, why do it? And that's just a tremendous 
drain, right? It's just sort of like zapping us, you know, or we might be thinking, we might be running a to-do list in our head, or we may be worrying, oh, I shouldn't have said that in the meeting. And then that's all we can think about. And so psychologists call this cognitive interference. But if you think about it, the anxiety is like a whirring engine in your brain, and it cuts out space for other things takes up a lot of your CPU and that kind of sucks. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's exhausting. On the other hand, when you're operating from a constant to-do list and a voice that tells you I need to do better, you may push yourself and push yourself. I mean, I, I know for me, like sometimes I have to actually, because again, you push, you push, you push, and you're like at the brink of that burnout thing. And then I have to then figure out how am I going to like get, how do I pull, pull, pull myself back? And I think that's where unhealthy habits, of course, start happening. Like, I can't even tell you my addiction to peanut M&Ms. You know, it's like, thankfully, that's the only thing I'm addicted to. <laughs> that's but, not the worst I've ever heard, by the way. <laughs> but it's pretty bad, right? It's pretty bad. I'm like, why am I eating these peanut M&Ms again? Like, no, I'm not hungry. I'm actually not hungry. I'm just really anxious right now. I'm triggered. Peanut M&M. I'm triggered, right? Uh, and so. What common, what are the common thought traps? You've mentioned some of them, some of them already. What are the common kind of thought traps for anxious achievers? I love thought traps. So thought traps um, are from Dr. David Burns, who wrote the legendary "Feeling Good," and then um, they come out of sort of. CBT therapy, which is that we get stuck in these cognitive distortions, right? And these automatic negative thoughts. When we're triggered, when we're activated and we're made anxious, we sometimes get stuck in thought traps or we act out behaviors, right? So eating peanut M&Ms is a coping mechanism that's a behavior. But a lot of us, when we're anxious, our head turns on and we think, oh my God, the boss just called a meeting for 9 a.m. tomorrow. I'm definitely getting fired. And then when I get fired, I can't pay my rent. And we just get stuck in a loop. And that's a thought trap called catastrophizing. <laughs> we get stuck in all or nothing thinking, right? I made this one mistake. And so therefore, I'm going to be punished. My son, Tom, who you know, my son, Tom, if he has, if he makes a mistake in a soccer game, he's 12, he gets stuck in all or nothing thinking coach is going to be so mad at me. There's going to be a price to pay, right? It's that lack of perspective. And we get stuck in imposter feelings. We're triggered. I don't belong here. I definitely don't belong here. And so what happens is, is that these automatic thought traps become sort of habitual, right? For a lot of us, they, they almost feel good, right? If we assume the worst, maybe it won't happen. So if we just worry hard enough and think bad thoughts about ourselves or what's going to happen, it's almost preventative. And so a lot of what we talk about in the book is really how to break these habits, whether they're behavioral, like eating peanut M&Ms, or for me, I definitely am reaching for some vodka. And, um, and also trying to sort of like take a break between the stimulus and the thought trap. And that's really sort of classic CBT therapy. I have to say, though, like even the fact that you're giving that language of or, you know, kind of bringing about this language of thought trap. When I read that, I was like, oh, that's what I'm on. I'm like in this loop that I'm like, you know, running around in a circle and I can't I have to get out of it. Right. And this is another thing that. I think it's so useful because again, words matter, right? How is anxiety different from fear? 
That's super interesting. Anxiety is different from fear. It's, I mean, it's sort of similar, but fear can be reality based. Fear is, Uh, yeah. I see that truck in front of me and it's changing lanes. I got to slam on the brakes. There's an external threat. Whereas anxiety is the same threat appraisal system, except there may be no truck and we may feel it because we have a meeting that we're really dreading or we think that we said something stupid, right? It doesn't actually need to be based in reality. It's an emotion. Oh, that's okay. Again, that, that's an interesting differentiation because you're right. And I think sometimes the fear, of course, feeds into the anxiety, right? Like they're, they're like, they're like cousins. Now, how can someone find out what triggers their anxiety? Like, is there like some sort of a more scientific system that I can be looking at and be like, okay, that's what's happening here? Well, I'm not a scientist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. After reading the book, I was like, okay. <laughs> and, I mean, I, and I will say that the word, the use of the word trigger, which has been used for many decades, yeah, you know, yeah. a lot of people are say, say activators instead, because trigger is obviously not a great word. Um, but I, I do use it in the book. It's kind of classic. You know, I really focus on your work triggers, but we're triggered all the time and everyone's are different, right? They're based on our past experiences, our personal makeup, on all sorts of things. So what, what may trigger me doesn't trigger you. And a classic example is we, I always use this example because it's so visceral. You open up your email, you see someone's name pop up and you instantly go and you feel yeah. anxious because you're expecting bad news. You're expecting them to yell at you or whatever, right? That email was the trigger. I got a letter from the IRS today. And before I even opened it, I saw IRS in the envelope and I was like, totally anxious. My brain went into a total thought trap. It went to a very dark place just by looking at an envelope. <laughs> um, and people obviously activate us. And, 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 you know, as, as we make a vocabulary, as we actually start naming these things, as again, this is why it's so important to just, that's why for me, the anxious achiever, like that's such a, brilliant phrase right um how how can anxiety be our ally right which is another way of like how how can it actually work for me instead of against me i mean this is the thing and i don't actually believe that anxiety is a superpower because anxiety can really suck so sometimes i see i'm seeing headlines and it says anxiety is your superpower i don't believe that in fact my friend meredith arthur we did an episode um and, and we sort of got in a little like fun fight about it. She's like, more anxiety isn't your superpower. You're your superpower. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's really true. Because here's the thing. Anxiety is on a spectrum. At the bottom end is really terrible clinical anxiety, right? It's when you have really, really bad, maybe panic disorder, or you have phobias, or you can't leave your bed. I've been there. You have a panic attack. You end up in the ER, I've been there too. That is terrible. That needs to be treated. And if that is what you're feeling right now, I really want you to get professional help. In the middle of the spectrum is sort of moderate anxiety, which so many of us live with right now, right? So many of us, we feel it. It's bumming us out. It's dragging us down. And then at the far end of the spectrum 
is anxiety that really helps us. The anxiety that you feel when you really care about something and you want to do a great job, right? You're about to, you, Jose, you're about to go give a talk that you really care about. You're handing in the manuscript of your book. You're anxious about what your editor is going to say, but you're invested and you're motivated and you've got that energy because we need anxiety. Anxiety actually keeps us alive. But when we're stuck in that middle anxiety of like the moderate, just walking around with the tapes and the dread, here's what's the superpower not hiding from it, not automatically eating M&Ms, not automatically calling all your teammates and yelling at them or micromanaging them or controlling them or telling everyone in the room how smart you are. It's taking a beat and saying, I'm anxious. Wow, something really set me off. And then through work and ideally therapy and practice saying, I'm super anxious. I want to react this way but is that really serving me? And this is the work of a lifetime, but when a leader can do that, when a parent can do that, when a friend or a romantic partner can do that, we stop acting out and we start being empathetic and listening and engaging. And that is so, so powerful. I mean, I, I mean, I just have to say, like, I, I think even even this idea of anxiety as becoming using it as some sort of like petrol, right, as some sort of like something that can like can I have to say that the thing that I struggle with there is figuring out how then it gets to this place where it's not just paralyzing me. Like, how do I? You know, and by the way, we're getting some questions now, which I'm I'm, I'm really happy that we're getting. I'm just gonna actually go to one because it's the same question that I'm about to ask you. What are some coping tactics when triggered or activated that and someone falls into talk traps? Mm -hmm. So we talk in the book, and there are so many, and they're evidence based. Um, <laughs> like what I'm really when my kids make me really anxious. Like I'm worried about them. I yell at them. <laughs> That's my automatic response. And so a tactic would be to notice I'm super anxious and to tell myself, okay, I'm really anxious because my son wasn't answering his phone and I was worried about him. And that is a thing for me. And you know, sometimes I actually, if I, if I'm wearing a bracelet, I'll touch my bracelet or I'll try to take a breath before I yell, right? It's a classic sort of behavioral tactic. The other thing you can do, and this is, this is really, it almost sounds cliche is breathing really helps because what you're talking about with feeling paralyzed is sometimes we just get flooded with anxiety. I, I, I screwed up something so bad a couple of weeks ago. I was so flooded. I thought I was going to pass out. I was so nauseous, right? I was overcome with fear and I had to do breathing for a good five minutes, breathing in for four holding for seven, breathing out for eight, trying to calm my body. You'll find people who use, you know, a prop, right? They'll feel something so that they can calm down. They'll feel an orange or they'll, um, I've seen frozen washcloths or picking something from the freezer, 
right? So that you can sort of take your brain out of the flood of anxiety, breathe. And then what's called cognitive reframing is the thought that might happen of, okay, I'm a little bit calmer now. Do I really want to have the bag of peanut (laughs) M&Ms? I I can't believe. Okay. So I've shared two things, peanut M&Ms, anxiety is oxygen. Here's the third thing. (laughs) And then I'll stop. Um, I didn't realize until I kind of finished the book, I had sat with it. And then, you know, that the way I deal with anxiety is I create walls. I am. I have been so used to just bottling it up and putting it in a compartment that I don't want to share it. Like I don't, because you know, saying it out loud, all of a sudden it's no longer mine. I gave it. It's like a virus. I feel like I'm spread it with somebody, right? But, but it was interesting as I was again. This was the thought process I went through as I was reading the book. Is that's actually not that's actually not served me well. I think. Like I think, and I'm saying this is a 42 year old grown person, middle age. I actually think saying it, sharing it in a way that I can say, oh, you know, like this is what I'm feeling right now and I'm feeling anxious instead of like bottling it up and creating kind of this all other – I mean, again, as an undocumented person, we're obsessed with borders and walls. And I think in a way I've created my own psychological borders and walls and part of it is like when I'm angry or when I'm anxious, I just don't want to name it. And I guess I wanted to ask you like so much of what you're doing here, Mora, is like – naming it, creating a vocabulary for it, right? How do you think, like, for people like me who are in the beginning stages, (laughs) outside of buying the book, the two books and the podcast, like, what else can we be exercising? Like, what else can can be a part of our, our kind of, you know, a way of, a way of actually dealing with this in a way that's productive for us? I mean, naming it is really important. And, and, I, and I feel like you, I, I call it being in your fortress. A lot of us people who manage anxiety, we do, we become a fortress and we don't ask for help and we don't delegate, right? And we just think, I'm on my own, I'm okay. But the anxiety goes into our bodies. It has to go somewhere. And so part of what I've, I've done a lot of research on and, and, and and learned a lot about for myself and in the book is how to listen to your body. Because again, a lot of us don't grow up with language and a lot of us don't listen to our bodies, but anxiety is going to show up to your, in your body. So if you're thinking about, gosh, you know, these feelings feel like what I'm feeling, what is setting me off at work? What is triggering me? And what is making me anxious? Pay attention to your body throughout the day. For me, I put it in my shoulders and my jaw. A lot of people put it in their stomach. A lot of people get headaches. People get dizzy. They get vertigo. They shake. They get clammy. Listen to your body because, again, it's trying to tell you something. Your anxiety is trying to tell you something. And something that I think is amazing, and I see my kids learning it in school, is that they are getting a bigger vocabulary for feelings. And they're becoming less scared of saying, I'm feeling this way. My daughter last night, she's eight. She said, mommy, I'm really, really anxious and worried. And I thought it is amazing. Like, I'm sorry that you're eight and I feel really terrible that you feel this way. But the fact that at eight years old, you can say that is a gift. 
And this is actually an, an, an original follow-up before I shared my anxiety as like a wall, is, is this idea of like, what are the first steps in making anxiety your ally and using it to your advantage, right? What can we start doing to allow anxiety to support our goals and actually not undermine them? We build a relationship with it. We don't try to deny it. We don't try to control it. We don't try to exercise it away. Although exercise is great, but a lot of us like over-exercise. We don't try to drink it away or work it away, get down to inbox zero it away. We get a little bit comfortable with the fact that we're anxious and we observe our patterns. And when anxiety is your ally, you can say, okay, look, I know you're showing up for me right now because I'm walking into this new job and I'm feeling really, really anxious and it's really, really hard, but I care about this job. So I'm going to use my anxiety today. It's going to pull me through. And then some days you can say, you know what, anxiety, you suck. You're telling me lies. You're telling me things I don't really want to do anymore. And so I'm not going to listen to you right now. But what I want, and especially at, at, in work, is for people to practice understanding when they're anxious and thinking it through and not trying to just tamp it down. Because when we do that, we act it out on ourselves and on other people. And, you know, the number one question I get from my listeners and my readers is, my toxic boss is making me so anxious because anxiety it pings. Right. And so I want people out there to think about like when I'm really anxious at work, how do I react? How do I behave? How do I talk to colleagues? How do I treat myself? And the ripple effects of that, right? The, like, ripple, because again, effects the ripple effects of that, how viral it can get. Um, one of the, one of the, again, language that you've created for me that I thought was just so useful is anxiety is data. Right. Anxiety is data. Like when I'm feeling anxious, that's actually objective data that I have. You gave this great interview. If you, if you Google it, everybody watching this, it's with the Boston Globe. You gave this great interview with, um, Kara Baskin, uh, parenting unfiltered. And I love that parenting, um, is again, another way to figure out like how does anxiety show up in that? And you talked a lot about in that, in that interview about this, this, how we handle perfectionism, right? And what advice would you give to someone experiencing imposter syndrome? Like Tom, for example, you've given us that example, actually that Boston Globe interview, or a perfectionist employee, you know, <laughs> who feels that they're never doing enough. <laughs> Anxiety as data is not my phrase. It's It's been used by scientists. So I just, I just bring it into my book, but um you know, when you get stuck in perfectionism, it's really, really interesting. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is, you know, I try to be very action oriented and in the moment, but perfectionism is a long held habit. It's long held beliefs that are stuck in your brain. And when we get into perfectionism, we're anxious that we're not enough. I interviewed Thomas Greenspan, who's a, a psych psychotherapist, um, who writes a lot about perfectionism. And 
my favorite quote from him is if you could lose the anxiety of your perfectionism, you'd still do amazing, awesome work without the emotional turmoil that and comes burdens. and yeah. burden that comes with the feeling that if I don't do this a hundred percent right, it's going to be bad. I'm bad. I think that's so profound. And so something that has been really helpful for me is trying to reduce your emotional investment in your work or in outcomes because huh. that can really, really help, <coughs> excuse me, reduce the perfectionism. Um, we ha- we actually have a few questions now from the audience. So I want to ask a couple Great. more. Um, I prepared some <coughs> questions me. in advance of this. I have to tell you, though, one of the things that really surprised me, <laughs> it, it was surprising to me, is your deep inspiration from Abraham Lincoln. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Um, <coughs> yes. Um I learned so much from my podcast and um, I always knew that Lincoln was melancholic, right? There's been so much written about it. And um, the Harvard Business School historian Nancy Kame came on the podcast because she studies crisis leadership. She studies leaders in crisis. And I asked her how many of history's greatest leaders that you studied have had anxiety? And she said, almost all of them. We got to talking about Lincoln. You know, Lincoln was clinically depressed. Lincoln had a lot of trauma. He was clinically depressed. He was anxious. And from the time when he was a young man, he built a support system who took care of him. Nancy told me, um, and there's a lot of books about Lincoln and his emotions, so you can dive in. I certainly went down many rabbit holes. He called his depression the hypo. And he would say, I feel the hypo coming on. I feel the depression coming on. And anyone who's been depressed can relate to that feeling where you start getting signs like, "Uh uh-oh, am I starting to get depressed? And he would tell people. People protected him. They hid razors from him because he had suicidal ideation. And, um, you know, Lincoln never carried a pocket knife because he was anxious that he might use it. And the thing about Lincoln that's so instructive is that Lincoln wasn't a fortress. He didn't build walls. He brought in a team and he built infrastructure. And I find that incredible. You know, great leaders know themselves and know what they need. And it seems like Lincoln did just that. And of course, we know he was so empathetic. He was a masterful communicator. He was a masterful manager. And I do believe that a lot of that stemmed, and a lot of scholars believe this, from his deep, deep experience and exploration of his demons and his mental health. That's so interesting because when I when I when I was when I was when I read that I, I I kept rethinking back to the Steven Spielberg film when Daniel Day Lewis portrayed Lincoln and you're right like we actually got to see I'm I'm curious if Tony Kushner who wrote the script had read these these books actually talking about Lincoln's kind of depression and his because you actually I actually now it's one of my favorite movies because just the language around leadership of that movie uh, is fascinating, but you're right. Like he, he built that, he built kind of an infrastructure, right. And even the way he, um, he dealt with his wife, Molly, 
um, you know, was, was, was really interesting. Um, okay. Before we jump into the questions from the audience and we're getting a lot, which is great. I have to ask you, I have to ask you this last question. So to avoid feeling overwhelmed or hopeless, you suggest people seek out what brings them joy. Um, and I have to ask you, like, where do you find yours? <laughs> you know, joy, joy in middle age. I could write a whole book about joy in middle age or the lack of joy. Um, but I actually think that consciously building in joy and actually what's so interesting is that Lincoln did this too. Nancy Keene has written about this. Lincoln loved having his friends over for dinner. He loved going to the theater. He built in joy during the darkest, darkest, darkest time. And I think that, you know, we, we think of self-care that gets such a bad rap. We think that finding joy and relaxation is a weakness in our culture. We always have to be producing, and I am so guilty of this. But if you can flip the script a little bit and you can say, I need to make space in my brain for joy, like anxiety, move over for a minute. Let's practice making space. It really works. And for me, I love to be outside. I love to garden. I like to play tennis. I like to, you know, hang out with my kids, although sometimes they don't bring me joy. <laughs> I love to read, but I actually um, have the privilege. My first book was all about being an anxious introvert. I actually find joy in being alone and I build an alone time. So think about also who are you with when you feel joyful and maybe you're by yourself. And this is why, by the way, this more I was just referring to her first book, which this I just fell in love with this one because it totally captures and this whole hiding in the bathroom. Like if you see me at some public events and you're wondering like where I went, I'm in the bathroom, literally sitting down, probably texting Mora a selfie saying, hey, look, I'm hiding in the bathroom. Well, um, and I, let me just say really quickly, like on my part, I have interviewed so many people like you who are famous, who are at the top of their game. They have terrible social anxiety and they walk into events and they either want to hide because it's too much or they walk into events and they think no one likes me. <laughs> totally anxious inducing, totally like, um, I, I have to say, by the way, and, and then before I go into the questions, one thing I was thinking about, and now we're going to personally share this. I took Maura uh, and Nico, her, her amazing partner and their kids to Into the Woods um, it's a Stephen Sondheim show and, it, you know, which is all about fairy tales. Right. And it's all about, you know, um, and you know, as a kid, as an immigrant kid, I didn't know Cinderella or Rapunzel or little red riding hood. I didn't know about those fairy tales. It wasn't until I got here and my introduction was into the woods and we're sitting there and I realized that I had never seen it with other people. Like I'd never seen it. Like you so see, you and Nico and you know Tom and, and 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 JJ were like the first family that I brought to see it with me. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, Jose, this show is actually about parenting. The show to me, it occurred to me, you know, like the most famous songs in that show is like "Children Will Listen," right? Careful the things you say, children will listen, right? No one is alone. Mother cannot guide you. And it was at one moment more. I don't know if you remember. I looked at you. Because it was some crazy song about staying with your parents. You know, you should stay with me, right? Like the world is scary and out there. And I was looking at you. We had this exchange. And all I was thinking about, and I want to tell you this now, is how blessed these kids are to have you as a mom. 
right? And then reading this book and reading kind of the vocabulary that you've helped create now, right? And yes, this book is specifically about what's happening in the workplace and what people can do. But I actually think that's why I loved reading that Boston Globe interview that you did. It's so useful for parenting, right? It's so useful to like understand like in this era of social media, um, you know, how can we be present and witness and help guide our children as anxiety and mental health become so much more commonplace for people, especially for kids and how that affects them as adults. So I just looked at you and I was like, man, these kids are so blessed to have you as their mom. So I just wanted to say that. They don't want to. <laughs> All right. So there's a few questions that are really specific. I love this one. So I consider myself a private person. But how do I talk to my manager and team members about my anxiety in a positive, helpful way and not a negative, stereotypical way? Oh, that's a great question. Great question, whoever asked great that question. Great question. And um, obviously, it depends on the relationship that you have with your manager and your team members. But assuming you have a collegial relationship and, and you guys talk, you know, one of the things that I think is really also a good post-pandemic evolution is the fact that we feel much more comfortable talking at work about how we work best. You know, there's all these great work style questionnaires and, you know, how do I like to be informed before meetings and am I introverted and how do I feel about the camera and, and all this stuff. And so one of the things that you can do and you can either do this one-on-one -on -one with your manager or if there's an appropriate meeting or you're starting a new project, is you can say something like, you know what, I'm a little bit anxious and I really care. And so sometimes I get really anxious and here's how it shows up for me. And identifying a couple ways that it shows up. I have a great example in my book from Christina Wallace, who's an HBS professor. And she talked about how getting news that would startle her was very triggering for her at work. And because, because, of, because of her childhood, because of her history and that sometimes it can't be avoided, but are there ways that we can lay down basic norms around communication, around expectations? I mean, expectations when we don't know other people's expectations of us, we get so anxious. So make it about how you work best and what the team can do to support each other, because that helps everybody. That's a really, really good point. Um, here, here's another question. Are there any companies, organizations that have introduced new or innovative measures to better support their employee dealing with anxiety or better mental wellness? Yes. Um, this is this is a very fast growing field. There is a, a nonprofit organization called One Mind, and they have One Mind at Work, and they have actually launched a huge research project on companies' maturity in workplace mental health. And so you have some companies, you know, places like Deloitte, you know, the big, the big accounting firms that have invested in, they have human capital, so they invest, who have really robust programs, you know, and then you have a lot of companies who are just starting, but that's a great place to start. Um, and 
I think also checking out um, Mindshare Partners, um, which I mentioned before. They have a lot of free resources and Mental Health America, SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management. These all have really good resources, toolkits, measurement things, questionnaires. Um, and here's a question that's kind of inevitable, but I think it's important to ask. Has social media increased the levels of anxiety in our lives? I mean, I think the data is saying yes. yes. <laughs> and and how do you think? I'm curious from your end because you know you, you part of the reason also why I, I I've known Mara for a while is because she's been really a leader in like the tech space, right? Especially among women and like organizing. I'm just curious, Mara, like what what have you as a parent and as kind of one of the pioneers in that early space? Like, what do you? How do you all talk about it in terms of how can we make sure that social media is not harming? our our kids i'm just like what how where is that conversation Uh, that ship has sailed social media is harming our kids and it's harming us the things i i think about from an anxiety perspective is twofold one a cycle of comparison i mean what makes us more anxious do people like me am i good enough have i been invited to that party (laughs) that's the whole point of social media it is literally the point. That's really hard. The second is the cycle of responsiveness. And I think things like Slack and Teams have only sped that up. And so it's really, I see my kids like they are on text all day and they carry their phone as if it's an appendage because you don't want to miss out. Again, a very human feeling. And so how do we break these very human needs? It's really hard because that's what social media is designed for. And and also just, I, by the way, the responsiveness, you know, like a, a friend of mine, Bing Chen, he founded a group called Gold House. And like, you know, when you send him an email and, and he's not available, he says something like, don't put urgent. Not a lot of things are actually urgent, like chill out or something along those lines. And I remember taking a picture and like sharing it with people. He's right. You know, there are a few things in life that are actually urgent. And yet, like, putting urgent in a subject line or time sensitive. I'm guilty of this as well as we do that because it's like automatic now with the way we think about how we have to respond all the time. All the time. And I mean, honestly, like out of office doesn't really count because I have rarely met people who have an out of office on who don't respond to email. It's almost become like a thing. Um, What do you recommend in talking with children about anxiety so they don't have some of the same negative experiences that many of us have experienced as a grown-up? It's a great mm, question. That's a great question. I mean, I, I think the first step is to get in touch with your own anxiety um, because our children learn from us. I have a son who's perfectionistic. Well, where did that come from? So you have to be you're a right, little bit... You're right. By the way, you're right. I, I wondered that. I'm like, where is that coming from? Like... Who told? <laughs> um, so, so, so you have to look at yourself, and I think there are so many resources out there that help kids. But honestly, one of the most powerful things kids can do is learn to identify their own feeling states and talk about it. And you'll see a lot of schools have red, yellow, green, blue. That stuff really helps because it builds that mental health literacy. And like any other kind of literacy, you start early, you check in a lot, and it grows as they get older. 
Um, this is a uh, weird. Here's this is a great question about breathing. You mentioned breathing, but are there other resources or organizations that you recommend in learning more how to better understand how to live with anxiety? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of them. And um, the ADAA is a great organization. I think ADD, say that again. ADAA, Anxiety and Depression Association of America, has a lot of resources. I like Very Well, um, Very Well Mind, which is a website with tons of resources, Psychology Today. But I am a huge proponent of therapy. It's expensive and it can be really hard to access, but if it's within your means, the process of getting to know yourself, your history, how you show up in the world. Also, if you're encountering bias, if you're encountering racism, the process of understanding that's not my fault, I can't fix this, I need to take care of myself sometimes, it's so powerful. And so... This is work, just like training for a marathon. It's work and it's an investment and it is so worth it. It's funny you say that because I do think of it as a mental marathon. Like I <laughs> I just started seeing a therapist a few months ago and <laughs> and I'm like, why did I not do this sooner? And and then I think I feel bad for all my closest friends who I've like burdened with like thinking that they're therapy when in reality, I really needed somebody who's not, who doesn't know me, you know, who can be this objective person. And, um, and then that was what, what's been interesting about it is actually talking to my own family members and the continued stigma within people of color, right? That this is not, that this is, you know, I had a cousin who actually said to me, this is a white people thing. Like, why are you, you know, like people of color don't need, you know, like we don't, we don't need therapy. And I'm like, what? Um, and then of course, showing examples of, are you kidding me? Like, you know, and this is where popular culture is actually really important, right? Cause you see some characters who are black, Latino, Latino, right. Who are therapists themselves. And so, but that was an interesting process of like actually trying to educate my own relatives about why that's important. Well, that, what, that, what, it's not a quote unquote white people thing, which I thought was such an interesting you know, interesting comment. Um, this is a question for both of us. I don't know what my answer is, so you have to go first, Maura. What is the best piece of advice that you've gotten in living with your anxiety and who was it from? So the best piece of advice was a question posed by my therapist. I was talking about feeling horrible about messing something up at work, something stupid. And she said to me, who told you you had to be so special all the time? I was taken aback. Really, who told you? And I said, I'm special. I've always been special. I've been special since I was three years old, like typical anxious achiever. And she said, well, who says? And and what's so powerful about this, and I talk about this in the book, and this is again from David Burns, is that... When we are stuck in our anxiety, we are focused inward. We're worried about why we're so special. We're not worried about everyone else around us. We're not part of the conversation. We can be distracted 
we are allowed to mess up like everyone else. We are allowed to have a bad day. We are allowed to not show up. We're allowed to be late. We're allowed not to be special. It's a little bit of ego death, says David Burns, but it's so powerful. And because I'm so late in seeing a therapist, I, and again, because I'm also so late in talking about this publicly, um, it's kind of an unorthodox answer to this question. So when you, when you come to my house, actually here in the backyard, I, I just, as a birthday gift to myself, I put a saying up there, the, the last line of Song of Solomon, which is Toni Morrison's third book. And the very last line of the book is, if you surrender to the air, you could ride it. If you surrender to the air, you could ride it. And I think I'm trying, I'm trying to like let my 40s uh, you know, letting my 40s be this thing where I'm like, okay, there are some things that are out of my control, which makes me anxious, right? That I have to control everything, I have to control everything. And surrendering. Like, when do I know, you know, um, that I've done enough, that perfectionism doesn't exist, right? That thankfully, this is too morbid, but it took me getting arrested in Texas and detained like almost 10 years ago now for me to stop being anxious about the government, which is kind of a weird thing to say. Like it wasn't until I was detained in a detention center, which is a jail cell, that I stopped being fearful of this government. I'm like, you know what? This is the worst they could do. Like they can't lock me up. Like, you know, like, oh, they can't take this. <laughs> Right. So that was helpful, you know, in like the processing of not being anxious about, oh my God, I'm scared of them. What if they catch me? Blah, 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 blah. But I think that line of surrendering and that this idea that there are greater things that there are, I'm not religious. I think I'm more spiritual than anything else, but I think that there's greater things at work. Right. And I love Mora that when you talk about what's happening at the workplace is really understanding. Um, and when you read the book, you get even better understanding of this is the fact that when you're anxious and how that manifests itself, it impacts everybody else who work around you. Right. And that's why I think the investment that companies and leaders have to make, this is actually good for their workplace, right? This is actually healthy for the workplace. It's to good name, for everyone. It's good for everybody. Um, all right. This is a great question from an audience member. Do you have any thoughts on how to make therapy more accessible and affordable? Great question. Mm. Great question. There aren't enough therapists. There aren't enough mental health professionals. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a personal story, which is I, I have half a social work degree, half an MSW, but it was going to cost me $70,000 a year and social workers don't make much money. We have to, it's like education. We have to make these careers affordable. We have to make education affordable so that people can afford to go into them. Again, it's yeah. a systemic issue. It's a systemic issue. All right. The last thing I have to say, and this is a tradition here at the Commonwealth. Um, it is a tradition to ask speakers this question. Um, what is your 60 second idea to change the world? Well, I'm going to pick up on what Toni Morrison said way better than I ever could. Um, you know, control is something that we all seek and we live in a very uncontrollable world. So much 
of what hurts us in our world comes from our inability to feel discomfort. To sit with discomfort, fear, anxiety, anger. We act in ways that are harmful. And I wish everyone would listen to Toni Morrison and sit with their feelings instead of acting out. Uh, our deep thanks to Mora, you know, author of The Anxious Achiever. Please, please get this in your book. And again, if you work in a company, you know, talk to the ERG people, talk to the HR people. This is might something that you probably should put in your work library. And you can contact Mora and ask her to speak if you want, you know, her to like speak to your to your work workplaces. Um, and we really encourage you, local bookstores, we have to keep them alive. So if you don't want to order them online, go to your local bookstore and figure that out. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming, please, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash events. Again, commonwealthclub.org slash events. Uh, I'm Jose Antonio Vargas. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you I'm producing a Broadway musical called Here Lies Love. David Byrne, Fat Boy Slim. Check it out. HereLiesLoveBroadway.com. Um, thanks again, Mora, my dear friend, Mora. And thanks to everybody. Thank you for spending time with us and take care. You've been listening to a podcast of Inform from the Commonwealth Club of California. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live or online events at commonwealthclub.org slash inform. And join us again soon for another podcast from Inform. You never know who you'll meet.